Chapter Six, Part Two of the Confessions of Arsène Lupin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Six: Shadowed by Death. He reached Paris on his motorcycle at nine o'clock in the morning. Two of his friends, to whom he telephoned on the road, met him there. They all three spent the day in making searches which Lupin had planned out beforehand. He set out again hurriedly at six o'clock and never, perhaps, as he told me subsequently, did he risk his life with greater temerity than in his breakneck ride, at a mad rate of speed, on a foggy December evening, with the light of his lamp hardly able to pierce through the darkness. He sprang from his bicycle outside the gate, which was still open, ran to the house and reached the first floor in a few bounds. There was no one in the little dining-room. Without hesitating, without knocking, he walked into Jeanne's bedroom. "'Oh, here you are!' he said, with a sigh of relief, seeing Jeanne and the doctor sitting side by side, talking. "'What, any news?' asked the doctor, alarmed at seeing such a state of agitation in a man whose coolness he had had occasion to observe. "'No,' said Lupin, "'no news. And here?' "'None here, either. We have just left M. Darcieux. He has had an excellent day, and he ate his dinner with a good appetite. As for Jeanne, you can see for yourself, she has all her pretty colour back again.' "'Then she must go.' "'Go? But it's out of the question,' protested the girl. "'You must go! You must!' cried Lupin, with real violence, stamping his foot on the floor. He at once mastered himself, spoke a few words of apology, and then, for three or four minutes, preserved a complete silence, which the doctor and Jeanne were careful not to disturb. At last he said to the young girl, "'You shall go to-morrow morning, mademoiselle. It will be only for one or two weeks. I will take you to your friend at Versailles, the one to whom you were writing.' I entreat you to get everything ready to-night, without concealment of any kind. Let the servants know that you are going. On the other hand, the doctor will be good enough to tell M. Darcieux, and give him to understand, with every possible precaution, that this journey is essential to your safety. Besides, he can join you as soon as his strength permits. That's settled, is it not? Yes, she said, absolutely dominated by Lupin's gentle and imperious voice. "'In that case,' he said, "'be as quick as you can, and do not stir from your room.' "'But,' said the girl with a shudder, "'am I to stay alone to-night?' "'Fear nothing. Should there be the least danger, the doctor and I will come back. Do not open your door unless you hear three very light taps.' Jeanne at once rang for her maid. The doctor went to M. Darcieux, while Lupin had some supper brought to him in the little dining-room. "'That's done,' said the doctor, returning to him in twenty minutes' time. M. Darcieux did not raise any great difficulty. As a matter of fact, he himself thinks it just as well that we should send Jeanne away. They then went downstairs together and left the house. On reaching the lodge, Lupin called the keeper. "'You can shut the gate, my man. If M. Darcieux should want us, send for us at once.' The clock of Montpertuis Church struck ten. The sky was overcast with black clouds, through which the moon broke at moments. The two men walked on for sixty or seventy yards. They were nearing the village when Lupin gripped his companion by the arm. "'Stop!' "'What on earth's the matter?' exclaimed the doctor. "'The matter is this,' Lupin jerked out, "'that if my calculations turn out right, if I have not misjudged the business from start to finish, Mademoiselle Darcieux will be murdered before the night is out.' "'Hey, what's that?' gasped the doctor in dismay. "'But then why did we go?' with the precise object that the miscreant, who is watching all our movements in the dark, may not postpone his crime, and may perpetrate it, not at the hour chosen by himself, 
but at the hour which I have decided upon. Then we are returning to the manor-house. Yes, of course we are, but separately. In that case, let us go at once. Listen to me, doctor, said Lupin, in a steady voice, and let us waste no time in useless words. Above all, we must defeat any attempt to watch us. You will therefore go straight home and not come out again, until you are quite certain that you have not been followed. You will then make for the walls of the property, keeping to the left, till you come to the little door of the kitchen-garden. Here is the key. When the church clock strikes eleven, open the door very gently, and walk right up to the terrace at the back of the house. The fifth window is badly fastened. You have only to climb over the balcony. As soon as you are inside Mademoiselle Darcieux's room, bolt the door and don't budge. You quite understand? Don't budge, either of you, whatever happens. I have noticed that Mademoiselle Darcieux leaves her dressing-room window ajar. Isn't that so? Yes, it's a habit which I taught her. That's the way they'll come. And you? That's the way I shall come also. And do you know who the villain is? Lupin hesitated and then replied, No, I don't know, and that is just how we shall find out. But I implore you, keep cool. Not a word, not a movement. Whatever happens. I promise you. I want more than that, doctor. You must give me your word of honour. I give you my word of honour. The doctor went away. Lupin at once climbed a neighbouring mound from which he could see the windows of the first and second floor. Several of them were lighted. He waited for some little time. The lights went out one by one. Then, taking a direction opposite to that in which the doctor had gone, he branched off to the right and skirted the wall until he came to the clump of trees near which he had hidden his motorcycle on the day before. Eleven o'clock struck. He calculated the time which it would take the doctor to cross the kitchen garden and make his way into the house. "'That's one point scored,' he muttered. "'Everything's all right on that side. And now, Lupin to the rescue? The enemy won't be long before he plays his last trump. And by all the gods I must be there!' He went through the same performance as on the first occasion, pulled down the branch, and hoisted himself to the top of the wall, from which he was able to reach the bigger boughs of the tree. Just then he pricked up his ears. He seemed to hear a rustling of dead leaves, and he actually perceived a dark form moving on the level thirty yards away. "'Hang it all!' he said to himself. "'I'm done. The scoundrel has smelt a rat.' A moonbeam pierced through the clouds. Lupin distinctly saw the man take aim. He tried to jump to the ground and turned his head. But he felt something hit him in the chest, heard the sound of a report, uttered an angry oath, and came crashing down from branch to branch, like a corpse. Meanwhile, Dr. Guéroux, following Arsène Lupin's instructions, had climbed the ledge of the fifth window and groped his way to the first floor. On reaching Jeanne's room, he tapped lightly three times at the door, and immediately on entering, pushed the bolt. "'Lie down at once!' he whispered to the girl, who had not taken off her things. "'You must appear to have gone to bed. Pff, it's cold in here. Is the window open in your dressing-room?' "'Yes. Would you like me to—' "'No. Leave it as it is. They are coming.' "'They are coming?' spluttered Jeanne, in a fright. "'Yes, beyond a doubt.' "'But who? Do you suspect anyone?' "'I don't know who. I expect that there is someone hidden in the house, or in the park.' "'Oh, I feel so frightened.' Don't be frightened. The sportsman who's looking after you seems jolly clever, and makes a point of playing a safe game. I expect he's on the lookout in the court. The doctor put out the night-light, went to the window and raised the blind. A narrow cornice, running along the first story, prevented him from seeing more than a distant part of the courtyard, 
and he came back and sat down by the bed. Some very painful minutes passed, minutes that appeared to them interminably long. The clock in the village struck, but taken up as they were with all the little noises of the night, they hardly noticed the sound. They listened, listened with all their nerves on edge. "'Did you hear?' whispered the doctor. "'Yes, yes,' said Jeanne, sitting up in bed. "'Lie down, lie down,' he said presently. "'There's someone coming.' There was a little tapping sound outside, against the cornice. Next came a series of indistinct noises, the nature of which they could not make out for certain. But they had a feeling that the window in the dressing-room was being opened wider, for they were buffeted by gusts of cold air. Suddenly it became quite clear. There was someone next door. The doctor, whose hand was trembling a little, seized his revolver. Nevertheless, he did not move, remembering the formal orders which he had received and fearing to act against them. The room was in absolute darkness, and they were unable to see where the adversary was, but they felt his presence. They followed his invisible movements, the sound of his footsteps deadened by the carpet, and they did not doubt but that he had already crossed the threshold of the room. And the adversary stopped. Of that they were certain. He was standing six steps away from the bed, motionless, undecided, perhaps, seeking to pierce the darkness with his keen eyes. Jeanne's hand, icy cold and clammy, trembled in the doctor's grasp. With his other hand the doctor clutched his revolver, with his finger on the trigger. In spite of his pledged word, he did not hesitate. If the adversary touched the end of the bed, the shot would be fired at a venture. The adversary took another step, and then stopped again. And there was something awful about that silence, that impassive silence, that darkness in which those human beings were peering at one another, wildly. Who was it looming in the murky darkness? Who was the man? What horrible enmity was it that turned his hand against the girl, and what abominable aim was he pursuing? Terrified though they were, Jeanne and the doctor thought only of that one thing, to see, to learn the truth, to gaze upon the adversary's face. He took one more step, and did not move again. It seemed to them that his figure stood out, darker against the dark space, and that his arm rose slowly, slowly. A minute passed, and then another minute, and suddenly, beyond the man, on the right a sharp click. A bright light flashed, was flung upon the man, lit him full in the face, remorselessly. Jeanne gave a cry of affright. She had seen, standing over her, with a dagger in his hand, she had seen her father. Almost at the same time, though the light was already turned off, there came a report. The doctor had fired. "'Dash it all! Don't shoot!' roared Lupin. He threw his arms round the doctor, who choked out. "'Didn't you see? Didn't you see? Listen! He's escaping!' "'Let him escape. It's the best thing that could happen.' He pressed the spring of his electric lantern again, ran to the dressing-room, made certain that the man had disappeared, and returning quietly to the table, lit the lamp. Jeanne lay on her bed, pallid, in a dead faint. The doctor, huddled in his chair, emitted inarticulate sounds. <laughs> "'Come,' said Lupin, laughing. "'Pull yourself together. There is nothing to excite ourselves about. It's all over.' "'Her father! <laughs> Her father!' moaned the old doctor. "'If you please, doctor, Mademoiselle Darcieux is ill.' Look after her. Without more words, Lupin went back to the dressing-room and stepped out on the window-ledge. 
A ladder stood against the ledge. He ran down it. Skirting the wall of the house, twenty steps farther, he tripped over the rungs of a rope-ladder, which he climbed and found himself in M. Darcieux's bedroom. The room was empty. "'Just so,' he said. "'My gentleman did not like the position and has cleared out. Here's wishing him a good journey. And, of course, the door is bolted?' "'Exactly. That is how our sick man, tricking his worthy medical attendant, used to get up at night in full security, fasten his rope-ladder to the balcony, and prepare his little games. He's no fool, his friend Darcieux. He drew the bolts and returned to Jeanne's room. The doctor, who was just coming out of the doorway, drew him to the little dining-room. She's asleep. Don't let us disturb her. She has had a bad shock and will take some time to recover. Lupin poured himself out a glass of water and drank it down. Then he took a chair and calmly, Pooh, she'll be all right by tomorrow. What do you say? I say that she'll be all right by tomorrow. Why? In the first place, because it did not strike me that Mademoiselle Darcieux felt any very great affection for her father. Never mind. Think of it. A father who tries to kill his daughter. A father who, for months on end, repeats his monstrous attempt four, five, six times over again. Well, isn't that enough to blight a less sensitive soul than Jeanne's for good and all? What a hateful memory! She will forget. One does not forget such a thing as that. She will forget, doctor, and for a very simple reason. Explain yourself. She is not Monsieur Darcieux's daughter. Hey? I repeat, she is not that villain's daughter. What do you mean? Monsieur Darcieux? Monsieur Darcieux is only her stepfather. She had just been born when her father, the real father, died. Jeanne's mother then married a cousin of her husband's, a man bearing the same name, and she died within a year of her second wedding. She left Jeanne in M. Darcieux's charge. He first took her abroad and then bought this country house, and as nobody knew him in the neighborhood, he represented the child as being his daughter. She herself did not know the truth about her birth. The doctor sat confounded. He asked, "'Are you sure of your facts?' I spent my day in the town halls of the Paris municipalities. I searched the registers. I interviewed two solicitors. I have seen all the documents. There is no doubt possible. But that does not explain the crime, or rather the series of crimes. Yes, it does, declared Lupin. And from the start, from the first hour when I meddled in this business, some words which Mademoiselle Darcieux used made me suspect that direction which my investigations must take. I was not quite five years old when my mother died, she said. That was sixteen years ago. Mademoiselle Darcieux, therefore, was nearly twenty-one. That is to say, she was on the verge of attaining her majority. I at once saw that this was an important detail. The day on which you reach your majority is the day on which your accounts are rendered. What was the financial position of Mademoiselle Darcieux, who was her mother's natural heiress? Of course, I did not think of the father for a second. To begin with, one can't imagine a thing like that. And then the farce which M. Darcieux was playing, helpless, bedridden, ill really ill interrupted the doctor all this diverted suspicion from him the more so as i believe that he himself was exposed to criminal attacks but was there not in the family some person who would be interested in their removal my journey to paris revealed the truth to me mademoiselle darcieux inherits a large fortune from her mother of which her stepfather draws the income the solicitor was to have called a meeting of the family in paris next month the truth would have been out it meant ruin to M. Darcieux. Then he had put no money by. Yes, but he had lost a great deal as the result of unfortunate speculations. But after all, Jeanne would not have taken the management of her fortune out of his hands. 
There is one detail which you do not know, doctor, and which I learned from reading the torn letter. Mademoiselle Darcieux is in love with the brother of Marceline, her Versailles friend. Monsieur Darcieux was opposed to the marriage. And, you now see the reason, she was waiting until she came of age to be married. "'You're right,' said the doctor. "'You're right. It meant his ruin.' "'His absolute ruin.' One chance of saving himself remained, the death of his stepdaughter, of whom he is the next heir. Certainly, but on condition that no one suspected him. Of course, and that is why he contrived the series of accidents, so that the death might appear to be due to misadventure. And that is why I, on my side, wishing to bring things to a head, asked you to tell him of Mademoiselle Darcieux's impending departure. From that moment it was no longer enough for the would-be sick man to wander about the grounds and the passages, in the dark, and execute some leisurely thought-out plan. No, he had to act, to act at once, without preparation, violently, dagger in hand. I had no doubt that he would decide to do it, and he did. Then he had no suspicions? Of me, yes. He felt that I would return to-night, and he kept a watch at the place where I had already climbed the wall. Well? <laughs> well, said Lupin, laughing, I received a bullet full in the chest, or rather my pocket-book received a bullet, here, you can see the hole. So I tumbled from the tree like a dead man. Thinking that he was rid of his only adversary, he went back to the house. I saw him prowl about for two hours. Then, making up his mind, he went to the coach-house, took a ladder and set it against the window. I had only to follow him. The doctor reflected and said, "'You could have collared him earlier. Why did you let him come up? It was a sore trial for Jeanne, and unnecessary.' "'On the contrary, it was indispensable.' Mademoiselle Darcieux would never have accepted the truth. It was essential that she should see the murderer's very face. You must tell her all the circumstances when she awakes. She will soon be well again. But, Monsieur Darcieux? You can explain his disappearance as you think best. A sudden journey, a fit of madness. There will be a few inquiries, and you may be sure that he will never be heard of again. The doctor nodded his head. Yes, that is so. That is so. You are right. You have managed all this business with extraordinary skill, and Jeanne owes you her life. She will thank you in person. But now, can I be of use to you in any way? You told me that you were connected with the detective service. Will you allow me to write and praise your conduct, your courage? Lupin began to laugh. <laughs> Certainly. A letter of that kind will do me a world of good. You might write to my immediate superior, Chief Inspector Ganimard. He will be glad to hear that his favourite officer, Paul Daubreuil, of the Rue de Sorraine, has once again distinguished himself by a brilliant action. As it happens, I have an appointment to meet him about a case of which you may have heard, the case of the red scarf. How pleased my dear Monsieur Ganimard will be! End of chapter 6